Howdy there, folks. Text the Black Pants Legion, and for a very special podcast, I have a special guest. But first, there must be a disclaimer. This is a podcast that has a disclaimer. This podcast has an enormous disclaimer. I will read the first half, and you may read your CV, but I will read the first half. So, this is the disclaimer, boys and girls, children and adults and grognards of all sizes. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the individual speaking and no way represent the official or unofficial stance of the United States Department of Defense, the United States Army, or any official or unofficial organization associated with these agencies. These are the opinions of one, and you wrote this, lackluster, ring-knocking junior officer who spends his time doing too much word in PowerPoint while hammering his third pot of coffee for the day and getting yelled at about the AR-2550. Any incidents of photos, doctored or otherwise, depicting him conducting actual training or missions are purely coincidental and may not reflect actual lived experience. Now, would you mind introducing yourself and paint a little bit of your CV so we can kind of know what we're talking about? Those folks out there in Radio Land have no idea what they're getting into. Absolutely. Hey, people, people, this is Robert the Bruce of the Black Pants Legion. Uh, so just a, a brief, plain English reiteration of that disclaimer. These are the opinions of myself and no one else. I am, I am speaking here as a private citizen out of uniform my own opinions, not linked to anybody or anything. That should be very, very clear and very hard for anybody to misunderstand. So a brief amount of background about myself. Um, I'm an army brat. I was a RSOF baby. I came up at Fort Bragg. After that, I actually uh, surprisingly got into the United States Military Academy, which was four years of uh, torture and brief glimpses of academic promise sandwiched between uh, getting the, my ass handed to me in between <laughs> academic semesters. Well, yeah, the um, South Hudson Institute of Technology, uh, that, that little school shit. on the Hudson, <laughs> a.k.a. West Point, continue. Yep. Yep, the big one. The world's preeminent leadership institution. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I've seen that before. Oh, yeah, those videos are great. But um, Oh, yeah, they're after, great. After that and uh, graduating during COVID, I was actually commissioned by Skype, which was pretty terrible, actually, because <laughs> I had no uniform with me. So I was like in a pair of slacks and like a collared shirt, raising my right hand to uh, dunk away the next nine years of my life. Uh, and it was just very underwhelming. Uh, but yeah, after that, I attended the Armored Basic Officers course, Bradley Commanders course, Scout Leaders course, uh, Maneuver Leaders Maintenance course. And for a little bit of context, uh, Armored Basic Officers course is doctrine, uh, tactical through strategic on tanks and armored fighting vehicles. The Bradley Commander's course is specifically Bradley knowledge. Uh, Scout Leader's course is all about reconnaissance. It is dismount, mounted, aerial, drone. It is recon your socks off. Uh, and then Maneuver Leader's Maintenance course is the Army got tired of the infantry not knowing what mechanics are or how to <laughs> or class nine class nine repair parts and so they were like we need to set up a school so that these guys can actually learn how to fix their stuff because they're obviously not doing it naturally um, i'm also uh airborne qualified air assault qualified uh i was then a staff officer 
for a while as a second lieutenant, assistant to the assistant regional manager. Of uh, course. Thank you for your service, <laughs> Dwight Schrute. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I was an Abrams tank platoon leader, a medium scout platoon leader, which was uh, cavalry scouts, which is Bradley's joint light tactical vehicles, uh, and actually a sniper section. So I ha- actually was in charge of a company-sized element that was almost exclusively reconnaissance assets. And then uh, now I am a light scout platoon leader with the Division Cavalry Squadron, which is a pilot program for the 1st Cav Division uh, to doctrinally and in the MTO material world figure out, like, if this doctrinal concept is how we want to fight our division, this is what we need for reconnaissance as far as organizations and equipment. And so that is that is sort of the uh, very broad brushstrokes overview of my my current level of education in army career so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about some of the fun stuff and i i work the industry the one that builds all of these fun things and encourages you guys to believe that they're uh invincible and I, I want to talk about some of the misconceptions that people may have. I think that at least in the West, there is this perceived flawless perception that the Abrams, which was designed largely for fold-a-gap scenario, where you have something where you're going to be facing Red 4 or Soviet and East German armor in the 70s and 80s, and it's going to be on the plains outside of Frankfurt and the mountains in between through the folded gap. And it's going to be one of those nightmare scenarios of 20 to one, 30 to one. And the belief is the Abrams can in all manners defeat everything. And no Abrams has ever been knocked out by enemy fire for any reason. And then you go like watch ISIS on Twitter and they have them and you go, Oh, well, wait a second. How, Wait, huh? And you start looking at these things. So I was going to ask you, what do you think that is more the reality of modern armor doctrine uh, away from, I would say, the armaverse view of armor, of armor doctrine, I should say? Oh, so this is, again, I had just quick reiteration on another section of that disclaimer. Uh, nothing I share is classified. Therefore, if like somebody hears some details and they're like, oh, 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 army personnel sharing things. It's like, no, this is all things you can Google. Um, <laughs> this is, this is, yeah, don't worry. This isn't a war thunder. <laughs> this is podcast. all screened <laughs> in my, my brain space to uh, prevent anything I know from getting out there. But that said, uh, so I think the reality is that we're realizing that, um, a vehicle's purpose built well so vehicles being designed and built for a set of capabilities and not a doctrine are ineffective so what you get from that I agree. is you get main battle tanks and infantry fighting vehicles so the problem with a main battle tank is that uh, it weighs 82 tons fully loaded and it's impossible to get across eastern european bridges Uh, The problem you get from that is you are trying to continue this main battle tank platform and shove uh, computers from the 2020s into a system that was designed in the 1980s electronically and and various different issues like that, right? So what we're finding out is that different organizations, depending on what you ask them to do doctrinally, need different sets of capabilities and that uh, something like 
Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle is fairly ineffective for urban combat because it's not designed for it. Or it's fairly ineffective if you send it up a mountain pass because a single dismount team with the javelin can just smoke everybody without being detected. So it, it's... Yeah, and it's a weird parallel thing. because we're I, getting to this point ahead. where we're uh, with the new program to standardize the army's chassis and various different equipment onto like the same frame we're running into this thing where we're finding out like wow light tanks were really cool like we might want to actually bring those back because they capabilities wise fit a niche that we can no longer address with the equipment that we have and i i wanted to really talk about that because the a lot of people don't realize how old the abrams is the abrams is quite old and most main battle tanks are quite old. A lot of these designs have been around forever. And those of you out there who served in, you know, uh, Iraq, you certainly have seen some of the attempts of using Abrams in scenarios where they probably didn't do so well. Um, and we will talk about 73 Easting later. But what I'm talking about is the Tusk or tank urban survival kit and many of these other ideas where they go this will make a tank fight a thousand insurgents and you're like yeah but why is that one on fire it seems like you know even though you have a remote control weapon and many of these other uh, you know ideas it seems like either the doctrine hasn't caught up or the design itself is being pushed into little buttonholes where it really can't do what it was intended to do. Because you have a tank that is designed to haul ass and shoot on the move, which if it's doing those things, it does them very well. But if you need something with a jet turbine that is near impossible to work on in the field and requires ass loads, astronomical ass loads of knowledge to make behave... And then you put it into a built-up, grueling urban campaign, you will find that, uh-oh, all these maintenance issues suddenly get a lot nastier. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you to explain to people, if you could, the actual reliability of these systems being used regularly. A lot of people think tanks don't need much work. Oh, that is the furthest from the truth. So for people who are not as familiar with the Abrams, it's designed to do two things. It's designed to go very, very fast because it has a Honeywell AGT-1500 engine in it, and the 1500 stands for 1500 horsepower. Sit hull down in a fighting position where the lower turret and your front plate are not exposed, and it's just the cheeks of your turret, and uh, defend against swarms of Russian armor. Those are its two purposes. It's actually a pretty sweet machine. Uh, if you take the speed governor off, it'll go 75 miles an hour, um, but it will melt the end connectors and the wedge bolts on the track together, and then that's a real bad day. That's why the government decided maybe it would be a good idea if we sort of didn't do that. But yeah, the Tusk is pretty cool. It's where you hang ERA from everything, and then add a 50 right above the gun. So that's the Tusk. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a bad play on words to be perfectly honest, but it, it it does make sense. And then you add a high profile crow's system in place of the commander's flex mount, so you can stay hatch closed, and you can use day TV and thermal imagery off of that crow's system. So the problem with it is it weighs a bajillion tons, and the suspension on the Abrams is only designed to handle it with with some healthy variants, uh, both up and down, like. 78-ish tons 
but the new the new V3 is 82 fully loaded. Like if you fuel it up and you put ammo in it. Um, so the the very plain reality of like maintenance on these vehicles in the field when you're when you're just riding them hard and you're beating the hell out of them is that they fail. Like you can easily go after an 80 click movement from four out of four tanks to two out of four tanks. They are they are a complex system of systems in which especially in modern-day main battle tanks, and the Germans will never admit this, but the Leopard 2 is awful, awful about it, is uh, like ghost electronic faults that just throw your entire system. And that is the one thing that I try to remind people, is people who are like, this tank is great, this tank is great, this tank is great. I point out the 2003 uh, you know, invasion of Iraq, where you have essentially um, all the buildup and logistics in the world, and all the tanks lined up we got. And they're like, go to Baghdad. Be gone. Fast. Get. And they all tank off. And by the end of a hundred click push, a third of the tanks work. And that is under the most ideal circumstances with all of the logistics and planning we have. And I know that ruins people's image of these tanks to realize a few miles behind them is a whole bunch of people with parts and tools trying to catch up like command and conquer with like a select heel put on a unit and trying to run up and, you know, get them back in the fight as quickly as possible. But what is your observation? You think like what other things do you think people really don't understand about tanks? At least modern ones. Oh boy. Uh, aside from the whole auto loader controversy is the, it's just the sheer level of complexity. Like it, it, when you hop inside an Abrams, we have everything from World War II backup, like era backup systems. So there's still a master blaster. So for all of you nerds out there who have seen Fury, which is one of my least least favorite films of all time, yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 the, weird. The part where like, the guy pushes on the pedal two- to shoot the machine gun and he cranks the handle to fire the main gun. Yeah, we still have those. It's it's called an analog backup, and you always need one because the electronics can and will fail depending on how far and hard you ride that vehicle. That's what I loved about that movie Fury is like the Tiger Tank fight is really good. It's really good where you see like where the fuck did that come from? And it's like way over there. You see a little dot and I'm like, excellent because most tank movies have these tank fights at like a hundred meters. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. And just the sheer level of maintenance. I don't, I don't think people realize that like every Monday in the army is motor pool Monday. That's an easy one. Pretty much everyone who's ever served has been part of that. But the, just the sheer level of crew and specialist maintenance it requires to keep a tank up, which is like your concept of tank nights. I absolutely love it because Thank that you. would be a very crunchy way to show people like, oh, no, much like maintaining the kit of an actual medieval knight. This is a gigantic pain in the ass. It is incredibly expensive. You need, you know, all of these different kinds of just little widgets and goo to keep this thing going. And you have to know how to replace them. And that's the hard part. Yeah, it requires a lot of schooling to make these things work. Another thing I wanted to talk about is this is a little bit controversial, at least in military affairs. There are those who say the Bradley was the greatest thing ever given to the U.S. Army and can kill a hundred to one effortlessly (laughs) through the application of superior firepower and superior vision and everything else. And then there's other people who go, the Pentagon Wars is literally true every last bit of it. And I'm the guy in the middle. I go, well... 
Nothing the U.S. military has ever made since, like, the M1 Garand has been as good as they said it was, because everything that gets more complex gets more difficult to take care of, and we only publicize our outstanding successes, but we also publicize our most outstanding flaws. But we never really accept that was it as good as we could do at the time to face the mission we had at hand. Now, I know a lot of people believe very ardently that the Pentagon Wars because, one, it's a film. (laughs) And, of course, film has creative differences and artistic nuances, which are certainly more exaggerated than anything. As well, it was based on a book written by one person's experience in military procurement. So I'm going to ask you the question because you are the most qualified. What do you think about the Bradley? Do you think that it is the Terminator be-all end-all and that everything negative said about it is bullshit? Or do you think that it is a flawed thing that has lived for too long? So I'm I'm somewhat in the middle. I'm not sure I would say either of those things. I think it is, and I agree with you. That's why I'm in the middle as well. Usable platform that needs some modifications. I'll start with a really basic example. So the Bradley is designed as an infantry fighting vehicle. It has a crew compartment in the back to carry infantry. That's crazy. Um, But it has six seats. These seats were clearly designed before people wore body armor because you can't fit the requisite number of people back there it's like and and god forbid you try and give them like a modern set of reconnaissance equipment because we we simply we fight differently now and we carry different equipment like you're not fitting an lras in the back of a bradley if you ever want to access any of your spare toes which are underneath the floorboards or any of your spare uh, chain gun ammunition, the Bushmaster, which are also underneath the floorboards in the Bradley. <laughs> it's just, it's got a lot of like little stuff that it does very well, but it has a whole bunch of very important things that it does pretty poorly. Um, so like, for example, the improved Bradley acquisition system, the optics package, it's actually pretty good. Like having served on... A tank, a Bradley, and then a joint light tactical vehicle with a LRAS on it. A It's like a long-range acquisition system. It's basically a whole... It's a huge box full of glass lenses and uh, day TV and FLIR optics. The Bradley's not bad. Uh, as far as fire control, the Bradley's not bad. You can target select and then track multiple targets at once. You know, it has the ability to fire a toe, even though it's a gigantic pain in the ass to reload. And no, for all you War Thunder players out there, you're not going to fire any kind of anti-tank guided missile on the move over three miles an hour, or else uh, the wire's going to break and you're going to blow yourself up. But that said, the Bradley has issues with, like, track maintenance. The suspension is not designed to tension the track in the same way that, like, say, an Abrams does, which means that you get a lot more thrown track with Bradleys because you simply cannot tension it and maintain it in the same way that you can something like the the beefier suspension on an Abrams. The engine fails constantly, mostly because of mechanical wear, and it's it's underpowered. Like, personally, I think it's underpowered compared to an Abrams. Of course, an Abrams, you know, 1,500 horsepower is a lot, but... You, you simply should not see that kind of failure rate from the Bradleys. And normally it'll be like a, a nut, a bolt, a gasket. Something will just get worn out or you'll you'll get it stuck because it simply does not have the oomph behind it to get where it needs to go. 
Uh, as far as the gun, like the 25 millimeter is great. Like it's fine. The Bushmaster is an excellent piece of equipment, but we're entering an era where most of our adversaries are using uh, weapon systems that if they do what they say they can do on paper, outrange us and have a better mean time before failure and are more accurate. Like, you know, a, a five millimeter difference in caliber, depending on your weapon system, can make a huge difference over range. But that's those are just a few of my thoughts on the Bradley. It's not a bad vehicle, but it is definitely not... I'm trying to think of how to put this. It's not what the United States wanted to fit their infantry fighting vehicle doctrine, necessarily. And I think we, we need to do a reassessment. Again, personal opinion of IFV doctrine and see like where that is taking us because I think we are finding out constantly that having a split between like light, medium, heavy tanks, this is a light tank that supports infantry. This is an actual trip carrier. And I agree with you. I, in studying doctrine and helping, you know, shape response to that, I've found that a lot of people go, IFVs are great. And I'm like, you know, what's really fantastic is if you're a platoon commander, splitting up your platoon into bunches of four and five people across as many vehicles as possible. So that now, instead of having one point of contact per 12-man fire team, I have three points of contact. And they all have to work together. And they all have to play in this increasingly complex radio network, which... If that is all built and maintained appropriately and trained appropriately, certainly does not present as many problems. But Mike Tyson has a saying, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. And the issue is, is if you have to break up your units into smaller units to fit into what you have, it's not as effective as bringing a larger APC that carries everyone together. So you have fewer points of contact, fewer points of stress, and fewer pain points on that radio network or a communications network, data link, whatever you want to call it. Oh, absolutely. And there's um, it, there are like people don't think about that unless you actively train to do it like consistently. So like reconnaissance formations like the ones I'm in, we train to do that all the time because that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's our purpose for existing like operating spread out like having a three-man lpop here like a three-man over there we got a mounted op over there and then but then doing those retrans operations on the radio and maintaining communications that's we do a lot of that because that's what we're supposed to do if you're talking about like leg infantry that's not their job now I will say it is easier for the infantry because as far as like army manning, they are consistently overstrength because everybody yes. ever everybody Send ever more boys. Yeah, everybody ever wants to be an infantryman and do the Call of Duty thing and kick down the door uh, and sleep in a muddy foxhole and people tend to I was just giving you shit about this the other night. People tend to forget about reconnaissance and yes. how important that is to be able to even if it's imperfect get a semi-accurate assessment of the enemy you're facing. Oh, indeed. And the one more thing I want to bring up about the Bradley is I've had so many people tell me 73 Easting proved the validity of our doctrine versus a peer opponent. Now, I'm not sure what they teach at West Point nowadays, but what do you know about 73 Easting in terms of the opponent? So that's interesting because we were actually just talking about this the other day in the Legion where I met through complete happenstance being a, a fellow grognard, a gentleman who was a 113 hammerhead crew member. 
at 73 Easting, uh, which is, again, for the audience, it is a M113, a Vietnam-era personnel carrier, and you essentially just slap a bunch of anti-tank guided missiles in a rack on the top of it and give it a system that it can target them with. <laughs> it's yep. called the Hammerhead. It's, we don't it's, use them anymore, it's, but it's a hilarious concept. Um yeah, basically, he, you know, I got to talk to him a lot about it. He was like, "Yeah, we just we caught them with their pants down, their vehicles weren't on, yeah. their guns weren't loaded. Like we rocked up, and and like you know, I think one of the hilarious things is that uh, General Shinseki, who actually um, you're probably more familiar with than I am, but my dad worked for him at one point, said, you know, like McMaster's, it literally could have been anybody. Like he got so lucky that he was the guy." who just so happened to be the company commander who was out front and and literally stumbled upon this brigade that were totally unready. Their vehicles yeah, weren't uh, running, they had no guards posted, they they weren't their weren't guns weren't loaded, like they were so totally unaware of the fact that there's an entire armored division essentially rolling down on them what? that they couldn't put up a fight. There was no peer fight. They weren't a peer opponent because they just got massacred. Well, it's not only that it's the tanks. The line of Babylon is not a T 72. And a lot of people forget that a lot of people also don't look at the age of the equipment and the average age of the operators and the average amount of training in live fire situations that they had at that point. And so you find that, again, it's a massacre, but people go, well, we won that one, so the Bradley good. And I go, what if you fight someone who actually has a peer level of knowledge? What if you fight somebody who actually understands what it means to be ready? Post guards have guns loaded and adequate training with peer or near peer equipment. How does that change that story? The United States Army actually does this all the time. I just got back from a rotation to the National Training Center, Fort Orr in California. Uh, we do this all the time, where we essentially run war games using the Miles and Star Wars systems, which is basically big, fancy, satellite-coordinated laser tag for those who aren't familiar with it. So as you shoot me, I actually die on the Star Wars readout system, and I go out of action. And it tracks where each dismount team and vehicle is at um so it does not nearly perform as well in a peer-on-peer situation because the way the united states army trains and this is kind of a doctor thing we've been doing this forever which is where we we train against a russian analog but then has equipment that actually works that is of peer capability to our own usually how it works is neither of you really knows where the other is at and then you find each other and there is a really short, very vicious fight, and about 30 to 50% of each side's combat power gets destroyed in about 30 seconds. And then you know where the enemy's at, and you understand where sort of their forward line of troops is at and where everything is going on, and then you start maneuvering on each other. It's sort of the, the that's how reconnaissance in those kinds of environments and vehicles work is it's almost a movement to contact where you blunder into each other. And then it's a, just a knife fight. And Bradley's not good at that. The Bradley is not good at, at, at close-range knife fighting because its silhouette is huge. It's slower than the Abrams. It, it just has a lot of it has a lot of good things about it, but it has a lot of stuff that it does very poorly. 
Well, it's made out of aluminum and has a lot of oh, ammunition yeah. in it, stored very haphazardly. And it's, yeah, it's it's one of those things where if you have all the advantages, you got all sorts of tools to play with to see and shoot and missile strike and call in support and dismount troops to help you find more to kill. But if you're fighting against somebody else who has guns that can shoot through, again, aluminum, you will find that your 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 difficulty with things um, increases. I, I have a dear friend of mine who lost both of his legs in a Bradley that was hit by a rocket that the Bradley in training, they told him would stop. They said, oh, it'll deflect. Stop that. No problem. Oh, yeah. It took a, both of it- his legs off. It's a design now, thing as well. Like the Bradley is designed yeah. as a World War Three scenario vehicle. Well, I, I don't know if anybody has checked recently. We're not really looking at fighting any World War Threes anytime soon. What we do have now, especially after the start of Ukraine, is a better idea of like what we will be seeing in the future from a conventional conflict. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think that largely it takes the military two generations to catch up from the last five years of war. And it's one of those things of capability that's slowly built through painful lessons and observing the sins of other people and then going, how do I not have this pull my pants down? But you also (laughs) realize you have an inventory of things that has been built for the last 40 years. And you're like, we need a new thing. And they go, no, use the old thing. The old thing is good. You don't need a new bike, kid. You got a bike. I got you a bike. And it's, you know, your huffy bike with the sparkler spanglers and the thing in it. And you're like, okay, dad. And you're doing the best you can. But it's it's one of those things of wishes be fishes. Beware what you get. Because during the Cold War, when we built this shit, this was the best guess we had. But now that the world has changed and now that the world is continuing to change, we're realizing our capabilities can easily erode if we continue using the same things without rethinking about what they're great at, what they're bad at, and where to put them. And that's why I really think it's interesting we start looking at these other army systems. Now, I know some people who said they love the Bradley and they hate the Striker. What do you think about that argument? Personally, I like the Striker. So I've been trained on the Striker as well. Um, the Love Bus is awesome. It was designed a little bit later. It's got more room. It's like ammunition and stowage layout makes more sense, which as a dismount, you come to very much appreciate. Uh, things like the Striker Dragoon or the Striker MGS are just silly. It, it creates so many both electronic and mechanical issues with the platform. It, they just need to go away. It, it, it is an infantry carrier, not not an infantry fighting vehicle. And and that's going to sound weird for me to say, because I was just uh, sort of lambasting the Bradley and its awful maintenance rate a little bit ago. But the, the two are designed for different things. Don't have them try to do both at once, because what you're going to end up with is just something that's not good at either of them. Oh, and that's one of the things that I think is just kind of fascinating as well, as a lot of people have a very interesting view of the Cold War. Um, they, they believe that, you know, all Soviet and Soviet forces in a Cold War scenario would be using T-72s. And I point out the T-72 is largely designed for export. If World War III had kicked off, it would have been T-64s and T-80s, with T-64s being used in one command and T-80s being used in another. And you would have a very different breakup of things. Of course, if things went hot enough, they would have, of course, used the T-72s. But largely, that thing was designed to help be kind of a cheaper, more robust tank, where the T-64 was kind of the... 
the special sauce. Now, things have certainly changed since, but my question is, if you had to command any Eastern or foreign armor for the rest of your career, what calls out to you and why? Ooh, so that's that's a good question. I would actually pick up a Tehran. The, uh, I, and if I'm recalling my vehicle ID correctly, that is the Iranian copy-paste of the Abrams. Because... I am familiar with the capabilities of that system. So, like, most people don't realize, but the T-series tanks that the Russians make are a three-man crew with an autoloader. What does that mean for you, the consumer? Uh, It's tiny. It is absolutely tiny. It is minuscule compared to the Abrams. And so is its armor scheme. Uh, But the, the Tehran is essentially designed to, within the best limits of the Iranian capabilities, to mimic the capabilities of the Abrams, which is like imitation is the highest form of flattery. Like it's not to say that it's a bad tank, but clearly somebody saw something they could use in their situation in it. If they're copy pasting it instead of just buying it from you, you know, but I I will say that's another thing people fail to realize is that they get wrapped around the axle. And this is the old Weraboo argument. The tiger was the best tank of the war. Um, It's like, okay, it, it was a good tank for what it was designed to do and where it was designed to operate. What that means when you get down to the nuts and bolts on the ground level as an end user of this equipment, and I can tell you from personal experience, is that when you take that thing and you put it in an environment it was not designed to operate in and you use it in a manner it was not designed for, it's not a good tank. It's not a good vehicle. And that's that's like the, the Bradley being used in urban environments is it's just not designed for that. The Abrams is not designed for urban environments. Like one of the doctrine things that we're running into and that I, I suggested, I was still on staff at the time, but then got moved to platoon leadership before we actually executed this exercise is I was like, they were like, you're going to, you're going to address the issue that is the city of Razish at NTC. Is it city being a strong term for a bunch of training buildings, but my thing is, I was like, why would I Why would I go anywhere near it? I'm going to park my tanks on all of the surrounding hills, and I'm going to push the Bradleys out the other side to stop anybody from getting near it. And I'm just going to control everything that goes on in that city. And if someone fires an ATGM at me from the city, I'm just going to flatten their building. This is conventional warfare, not coin. Like, I, we dropped leaflets on them three days ago saying, hey, you might want to leave uh, the U.S. will offer you aid if you so choose to do so. Uh, but, like, we are, as an organization, struggling to come to that realization that we need to learn our lesson from COIN, which is urban environments are hard, no matter what you do, and armored vehicles are not designed for them. It's it's really, it's the domain of the infantry, and that's just a, a fact of life. Oh, and I agree. I, I think it's kind of silly that people have this, this tank is uber allis. It's the wearaboo argument that continues to come up in new countries. This is the best tank ever. It can destroy it. And you're like, what if it runs out of gas? Put it in a swamp. And the... Yeah. Have it cross a river. Yeah. Like, oh, you think that's waterproof? Or you think that's amphibious? It might be when new. All right. Now, here's here's the other question. What is your favorite thing that people don't know about Eastern armor or armor outside of this country? Because one of my favorite things I love telling people is they're like, why do BMPs blow up? And I was like, fuel door. (laughs) Fuel door. 
Door. Fuel. Fuel door. The door is full of fuel. <laughs> if you shoot it, it explodes. Fuel yeah. door. I store my gas. My homies know I store my gas in the door. So have you ever explained? Have you ever actually explained that one to people? Or I encourage them to go look it up because they don't believe me. They, okay. they don't, they don't okay, believe no, me. Right. But if you want to take a swing for the podcast audience, please, this is your platform. Oh, no. So I'll tell you guys. Uh, so the BMP is an armored fighting vehicle. It's got doors on the back, right? But if you ever look at it through thermals, you'll notice that the door is a really dark color. And then the tracks, like right next to the door, are really bright color. And so the reason that is, is that the tracks are very hot from running and the friction. And the door is very cold because it's having to heat all of the liquid inside of it, which is fuel. <laughs> the fuel for the vehicle is stored in the door that you get out of as a dismount. The as a fuel dismount. Fuel is stored in the doors. <laughs> yes. I think one of my favorite quirks is the BTR actually. Oh yeah, uh, and the 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 jump out between the tires door. That one is just wild. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like okay, get ready to go, but just hope that we come to a full stop before you go, or else you're gonna lower the you're gonna jump out and you're immediately gonna get a face full of tire. I love it's like oh, I'm, most military. I'm not real confident in this. Most military drivers I know are more skittish than racehorses, and if anything bounces off their vehicle, they just floor it. So what I'm thinking is, imagine that door comes down because you're up at the front and shit's popping off, and you you know open that door and you're like, all right, I'm getting out, and you get a little snagged with your kit and everything because you're carrying way too much fucking shit, plus your Oreos and your bong and everything else you need, oh, and you're yeah. just trying to get out. And you're like, uh, uh, uh. that driver has one. One high caliber round that bounces off the mantlet, and he's like, "I'm gone. See ya." <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. And that's again for those who maybe not be familiar on the podcast. The BTR is a, a really it's a reconnaissance wheeled vehicle that can carry a dismount team. It's an eight rad, but how they designed it is the exit door is in between two sets of tires. So you've got two in front of you, and you've got two in back of you. So on the 70, there's no step to get you past the tires. So literally, when you get out of the vehicle, you are directly in line with the tires to get run the fuck over My if they go anywhere. Now on the 80, they actually fixed this by adding this little itty-bitty like rinky-dink fold-out step so you can take a step away from the tires as you get out of the vehicle. And that clearly solved the problem. But I, I just love some of the other ideas. Because like, if you look at Bonkers vehicle ideas, you look at their first gen Bradleys and they have the uh, port firing weapons, which are essentially M16s that have been modified for horrific rate of fire. They're just basically runaway guns. I've shot a port weapon before, and it was just... Oh, yeah. It's one of the... It, a friend of mine was an AR collector. He had all of them, including the full-auto ones. Just he, he had tax stamps for everything. But he... At one point, the U.S. military did get rid of some of these. He had one. And when he... Oh, when I God. shot it, it was... it. The instructions on it should have said... Press for enemy, hold for aircraft, because it is just all the bullets at <laughs> once. No matter how quick you are on that trigger, they're all gone. And the Bradley had portholes where you could do drive-bys with these things, which is like a really cool idea. If you smoke a lot of pot and live in a van <laughs> down by the river, you're just like, man, wouldn't it be metal 
if we had a bunch of machine guns in a van and just drove around shooting stuff and it's like right but to be able to use those effectively use those you have to like be on your knees and then get into it and not only that but you have holes in the vehicle in what is supposed to be world war three and it's it's not you know chicken pox you're worried about in world war three it's all the gases and all the nukes and it's like yeah but i got this cool machine gun so i can pretend to fight people with it Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure whoever designed those. We still got some of them. Oh, you can't. We get still rid have of, Bradleys yeah. in service that have the the ball port. You know, there's obviously not a gun mounted anymore. That it's got the ball port and it's got the little slidey hatch that goes mm-hmm. over to cover it. We still have them. Here's my idea. I, like, Here's... I'm not sure somebody wasn't like smoking crack <laughs> and then like looking at the Chimera from the Imperial Guard Warhammer and being like, "That's a great idea, man." Yeah, I have an idea to make those cool again. Now, uh, make the Bradley cool again. I have ideas. I don't want to hate it. I want it to be around. I want it to live a good long life. But I have some ideas. Now, you're an armor officer. Let me lay this on you. Pretend, pretend you're here to be military procurement and approve it. Okay, on the front of it. Cow catcher Mad Max style, right? Like the front of the semi truck, <laughs> right? And we just paint big, scary tiger teeth on it, like the Korean Marines do, you know? Just ah, right? Just scary. Yeah. Okay. Turret Bushmaster. That's nice. That's nice. I'm going to go with twin uh, M134 Gatling guns with about a thousand uh, oh. yard, you know, coincidence. So, you know, so, uh, you want to make an infantry fighting vehicle? I'm going to make this the infantry fightingest vehicle. And then on those side ports, you know what? Nah. Drill them out. Flamethrowers. Hey, I support it. I see. I think this is cool. <laughs> it's, it's a. I, oh, God. I just. You would have to get rid of all the infantry in the back. Oh, you would yeah. have to cut it down to like two guys, and the rest would just have to be this fuck off enormous ammo box because you'd you'd blow through all of your ammo in about three seconds to be like, well, gotta wait for the logistics platoon to get here. Think about that though. When that thing goes up and the fireball and proceeds to explode for ninety minutes, you won't be like, oh, we lost a Bradley. You would be like, that was fucking cool. That was really fucking cool. I'm thinking about when you pull the trigger and you just you just. <laughs> yeah, you just hear this awful ripping sound and like buildings start like falling over in half. And it's like the enemy would certainly get a message. Yeah, they might the, not get the one you want them to, the message but they're going to get a message. <laughs> the message is America is here <laughs> to help. America is here. <laughs> yep. Well, the other oh, idea God. was I came up with an alternate, um, an alternate urban fighting Abrams idea. Now, this is a refit, and I, I know it's absolutely stupid, but I think you could get a Gawaid in it. No, you definitely could. Yeah, I, I think I think now you would probably have to get some of the armor out of there and some of the other stuff uh, because that's. But I mean, if you've got a Gawaid, cut. So this is again in the realm of stupid vehicle ideas. Oh yes, ideas. this is very cut, dumb. Cut the loader. Have the tank commander move the radios to the tank commander side. Have a gunner, and you just move the coax a little bit so you got the radios with the gunner. And then you turn the ready and semi-ready rack into just a again a big fuck off ammo box. Yeah. You link everything together so that it's got a Gawate and it's got like ten thousand rounds of ammunition all clipped into a belt. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. And then it's like, well, I can operate for about 30 minutes and then I have to go 10 miles to reload and it's going to take me three hours to link everything. It's, you're going to be sitting there listening to a linking machine for the next week. Just ding, 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 <laughs> yeah. ding, 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 ding. And you'd be like, uh. Now, the the other really dumb idea, um, because I, like every podcast, we, we start off in the realm of reality and we start off with, you know, talking about real stuff. Then we just got to get into stupidity because it's, it. I want to undermine any notion that we're experts we're just two guys talking and and that's oh yeah that's, expert would be a very strong term. i would never use the term <laughs> expert i'm just like i know stuff um and i think that that's just kind of important i i want everyone out there to listen and hear that we're two people with a lot of experience in various things but we're also just two schmucks talking who just share time together and that's kind of important because there's a lot of folks out there who will say this is the definitive x or y that's interesting, but that's one person's point of view. And no matter how well cited it is, uh, you can go out there and certainly research your own point of view and develop that over time. And that's what we want you to do. But I want to continually remind people, this is just two people talking. Now, when it comes down to dumb, here's the other one I got. And this is great. Oh, boy. All right. Remember, remember how they floated this around for a while. I forget the exact acronym for it, but it is the Doppler system for detecting gunshots fired at a vehicle. And so it can actively target back and say it came from this quadrant. Oh, so they actually, um, let me think here. You know what I'm actually, talking they actually, about? Yeah, they actually used some of those in certain theaters of places, which is about as much as I can say, um, they don't work real good. Oh, no. I'm saying... It's a little if bit you can... like the Red Eyes of Stalin on the T-90. Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is such a cool technological idea. And some guy with a $3 gas station laser just spins your turret in a circle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what I'm thinking is, you max that, you, you take that, you saw the top of the Bradley off, and you put a C-RAM on it. And you just have that Doppler system and the CRAM on. So it's just like, ping, boom, bang. <laughs> just, yeah, just anything that shoots at you gets a thousand rounds of oh 20 mil. God. I think that would be really exciting. I'm not I, saying good. I, I'm just saying, because someone would like slam a door and that would be the end of the program. <laughs> it would be like, let's do this DARPA test. And someone like drops a, f a phone on gravel and it goes and just points right at it and just starts clicking off rounds. It would be bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, it, I'm sure everybody's seen the article about the drone that decided that the best way to solve its mission problem was to blow up its was own Was to operator. kill the operator. Yes, it's, because that was the, the limitation. Then it, because then yeah. it could just do whatever the fuck it wanted. Uh, yeah, so aside from issues like that, I love it because here's the thing, and this is the second time I'm going to say this, and people don't, people don't realize this. Military vehicles are good if they work for the purpose they were designed to do in the place Indeed. where they were designed to do them. Which, well, means, like that, which means that DARPA murder, murder radar, you know, hobo machine might be fucking great. It might be the best thing ever if you need to use it in an environment where that's what you need in the jungle at Dembian Fu. I mean, um, like, but if you're trying to use it in downtown New York, 
uh, yeah, you're just going to create a whole lot of collateral damage. Well, it's it's not only that. It's like people say that a lot of the AI-driven ideas with the weapons are terrifying. They're like, oh, it's going to be Skynet. Ah! And I'm like, these things can't solve a fucking CAPTCHA. I'm not really worried about it. I'm they more can't. worried about a dumb operator pressing them into action going, they're very smart, and then not making decisions. Like, that terrifies me more taking humans out of the loop where there should be humans on the loop versus somebody going, what if the machine becomes sentient? And I was like, have you ever watched the DARPA challenge? They can't open a fucking door. <laughs> like one of the challenges is robot gets out of vehicle, walks over to a door and turns the handle. Half of them go through the door before turning the handle, like just by force. And then the others will start to look at the door, wait 45 minutes, raise a hand to the door, wait 45 minutes and then fall down. And like it's like this, not self-driving car that's like doesn't see toddlers because it can't recognize them here or AI art that can't understand that humans have five fingers. It's like, I don't really yeah. think we have a lot to worry about. I think we're I, OK. Yeah, <laughs> well, I get asked that question a lot about like Battletech art. People go, oh, man, are not you going to use AI art for Battletech art? And I was like, no. Because it will put giant fucking tits on robots. All it knows how to do is make porn. That, that is what people have trained it to do. It's because it learned like, from the internet. Yeah, it's it's the same reason I'm not afraid of chatbots taking the place of persons. Because it all I have to do is wait for a minute and then it'll start threatening me or saying anti-Semitic shit. It is like, <laughs> I'm not going to believe that's a person unless it's, well, trying to like replicate Twitter or Reddit. Then sure, probably. But... When it comes down to, you know, uh, weapon systems, I, I'm sitting there thinking of the future. Now, the future is something that a lot of sci-fi settings, games, books, and everything try to see. What do you think is the best depiction of a future military in film and a video game? Oh, I fully, I'll answer the question, but I fully welcome the complete collapse of our current cyberpunk dystopia and the advent of neo-feudalism. I'm all about it. Um, but anyhow, I, so I don't know. So this kind of gets to like your, what's your favorite war movie question where it's like, okay, different ones for different reasons. Yeah. I think future militaries are going to learn a real hard lesson the next time we have to pick a real fight. So I think we're going to see things sort of like a sine wave. We're on uptick right now. Right. And that uptick is like, technology and complexity and systems of systems and we're going up into this multi-domain operations you got all sorts of electronic warfare and air defense and all this stuff and then we're going to hit a peak and this gets into we were talking about acquisitions and stuff earlier and getting repair parts and all and then we're going to go down because we're going to find out that uh you can't crank abrams out like a hundred a day like you simply cannot make the electronics fast enough and to get the industrial capacity to do that, you would just have to you would have to destroy entire nations to do it. It's not practical. I, I think that and I think the next time the world gets into a big knockdown drag out fight, people are going to realize that, hey, good enough is good enough. And really excellent is great if you can do it. But not many people can. So to that end. I, I think cyberpunk actually gets stuff wrong in this sort of... Uh, I, I kind of think it's going to be like Warhammer. Like, I have to say, I think it's going to be this dumbing down of technology to a point where you've got some of these fabulously, ridiculously complex, like, god-tier systems, and then everybody else just has, like, an FAL. 
because that's what that's what you can make, you know, and it takes a hundred years to make, you know, crazy stuff in that setting. But you can crank out las guns, you know, 55 at a time and just send the crate off to wherever it needs to go. I, I like for future movies that I think gets it accurate. And I want this to be true is the movie Aliens. <laughs> where, oh God! No. Where a bunch of people I, that, wake up it, and they're like, "Where the fuck are we? And what are we doing?" And they're like, oh, "It's another colony." <laughs> they just get in their APC and go down there, and they're like, "I'm not paid enough for this shit. Shoot everything." Like that. That ticks in my head. I like that one. That's just militaries in general. You don't have to go very far to find that mentality. Um, but no, Aliens kills me because you've got the colonial marines. It's sort of like the Avatar movies. You're like, ugh, future militaries. And it's like, they have zero professionalism. They have zero tradecraft. It's just like, you know, stock bad guy with a gun. It's yeah. Like, come on, really? Could you not have done better than this? I, like, there's military advisors out there. There's plenty of veterans who advise on movies who are like, okay, at least look like you're competent. Like, at least look like you sort of know what you're doing. Right, that's... And, and then you have movies like Aliens where it's like, yeah, we're the colonial marines, yeah! We took this starship that can fold space across the noon galaxy to bring, like, a fire team to a thing. And you're like, yeah. if that was a real ship, there would be 800,000 marines on there, and they would funnel them down for six months and then like create a wedge that was like 30 miles long and then be like, all right, let's kill everything in this direction. Oh yeah. It's the old get online and anything that doesn't look like us. This is how humanity is going to deal with aliens. Uh, Anything that doesn't look like us is just, you know, just shoot it. And like, that's it. That's humanity's knee jerk reaction to everything. And honestly, you know, not to stray into conspiracy theory territory, but if there are aliens, we're probably right to do that because so far in our existence, it's served us very well. <laughs> yeah, humanity is very much a funk yeah thing when it comes to the unknown. Is like there's not a lot that would unify us in principle or concept, but if aliens came down here and people just started kicking their ass, you would have so many other nations be like, yeah, I'll get in on that, sure. <laughs> Everyone would just start freighting stuff in because they'd be. Like America, fuck yeah, and just get in there and break stuff because this is the best challenge we've ever had. And whoever wins wins it all. Like I saved Earth. Like people want that campaign ribbon. I know people who are vehemently anti-military, anti-gun, anti-violence. And if I told them they could be a space shuttle door gunner to go fight Xenu. They would be like, sign me up, Captain. What do I have to do? Like, they'd be like, sure, no problem. Because that appeals to us. Like, survival of the species and fighting for the universal good of humanity is something most people sign up for. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. The mobile infantry did nothing wrong. (laughs) Well, I always thought it was funny in that movie because I read the book. I love Starship Troopers, the book. I think that is a fantastic book and you realize it's written in the 50s so incredibly ahead of its time in terms of complexity and narrative and everything but one of the things that blows my mind is i watched the movie as a youngin um after reading the book and i was like what is this in my head canon has since become that the movie is propaganda in the universe 
You know what I mean? Where everyone's a hero yep. and it's there's no heavy equipment or anything to get in the way. It's individual heroism. Oh, you but can what, see everybody's face. Like it's very Hollywoodized. Like you can Oh yeah. Johnny Rico. You know, yeah, my like, my favorite part of that that makes it fit my headcanon so well is that I said that what if the bugs were not really a threat at all? Like they couldn't leave the planet or whatever, you know, they not a threat. And so Earth is overcrowded and they just ship off ass loads of people with marginally effective <laughs> rifles. Because in, in that movie, aside from the guy with the scout scope, you see nobody with sights on any of these things. And they're shooting very much tucked under the arm. So you can see the whole face and it's very emotive, very Hollywood. But I think it's hilarious that these people just have bullet hoses and are running around like it's a Borderlands game. And I'm going, <laughs> what if that's how they deal with their overpopulation and societal issues is they just truck off like 200,000 people a year to some far flung shithole and go, oh, no, the bugs attacked us. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I so I saw the movie in a very similar sequence of events. I actually got the book recommended to me and read it. And I was like, wow, this is pretty deep. This covers a lot of very uh, non-standard concepts, you might say, for uh, for kind of what is advertised in the movie as like this schlock, you know, throwaway sci-fi like satire movie. But that's because the creator never read the book. And he was like, I have a political message I want to state. And then just didn't read any of the source material. And he so he totally missed Heinlein's point, which is awesome because the book is excellent. And then the movie is also excellent, but for different reasons. It's it's a schlocky movie. It's it's what I call a popcorn movie where you're just like, oh, yeah, it's fucking cool. Oh, yeah, it's fucking yeah, yeah. cool. Plenty of films like that. I grew up on canon films. You know, like Invasion USA and, you know, Ninja Part 8 and all this nonsense that was your, you know, Saturday matinee movies that are just shit if you're growing up poor. And it was the shit. You'd be like, hey, man, you want to watch a guy dropkick someone off a building? And you're like, yeah. (laughs) And nothing else matters. You're just waiting for the scene, you know, or, you know, Invasion USA where he just pops down and he's got two MAC-10s and is just shooting people looking tough in denim. And you're like, yeah. Like, it doesn't matter who these characters characters are or what they oh, do yeah. or, all know. the kind of stuff that used to get lampooned on mst 3000 yeah and that that's mystery science theater 3000 for for anybody who's listening if you've never heard of it you need to go check it out it is excellent they are some of my heroes um they they are some of those people who they started in i think it was minnesota public access and they they just started with no budget no idea other than we make fun of shitty old movies we have on hand <laughs> And they and it's one of those things where you can watch a lot of those movies and they're kind of exciting because a lot of more modern film is very predictable and very, oh, yeah, the good guy wins or whatever. And then when you go look at these movies that had like a budget of fifty thousand dollars and you see what horrible things they have to do to make a movie and you just start laughing because you're like, man, that seems like that was fun to make. Uh, A lot of them are really bad. Oh, yeah. So. Here's here's my question. In terms of video games, I know there are a lot of people out there who I've talked about them as like the Call of Duty generation in the world of guns and gunsmithing. You run into that stuff a lot where people have super, super tricked out, customed out $2,000 Glocks. People have super tricked out, customed out, you know, ARs and all this other stuff. And they're like, I do two gun and I throw kettlebells and I do all this stuff. And, blah, and, uh. and I'm like, that's neat as a hobby. But that's not real. 
And I've seen a lot of people who do that sort of stuff and they act like, well, because I shoot my guns really fast at a paper target, that means I'm ready for combat. I've seen people who think that a soldier needs an AR-15 first or an M-16 first and no discipline, no training, no camaraderie, no understanding of radio networks, no understanding of how to do first aid. I see people with a lot of stuff about their everyday carry, and I see no medical equipment in there. I see no medical bags. I see no trauma kits. I see no tourniquets. I see nothing to pack a wound. I see nothing that actually makes you realize you're going to be in combat. I see a lot of John Wicking, as I call it nowadays. It used to be Call of Duty people, but they've largely kind of grown out of it. And it was just kind of a whole phase during the War on Terror. But in more military-minded uh, people especially, and I did this a little bit until I got fairly annoyed, um, Arma. I know there's a lot of people who believe that Arma equals oh reality. And I know oh you've God. done your Arma time. So I wanted to see what oh you thought God. as someone who's been to fucking West Point about people who think that, well, I play a lot of Arma. So I obviously understand combined arms or, you know, counterinsurgency or all these things because they play with Zeus with their friends. Okay, I'm going to say this. This is going to sound like very dickish. Um, I'm sorry, but most of the senior leaders in the army don't understand combined arms. I can tell you for a fact that you don't fucking understand combined arms, especially in the modern era, because the next evolution of combined arms is multi-domain operations. And it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Because you have to synchronize cyberspace. You have to synchronize uh, it, and cyberspace covers radio waves. It covers uh, space, space, like the actual satellite space. Yeah, it's folding in SIGINT, GEOINT, MASSINT. It's figuring in all of these things. Like, yep. like the, the battlefield is not the range of the enemy's artillery anymore. And especially because it's the United States, like, but that's kind of a moot point. Our artillery goes anywhere we want it to because we say we yeah. say so. Yeah, where it's like, oh wow, cool. <laughs> Let me wind up these TBMs I have and make shit go away with a stealth cruise missile from several countries away that hits a CEP of let that circular error probable. That is the little parabola. And for those of you who don't know, that's little parabola. Kind of like minute of arc in shooting. It's that little parabola in which something is going to strike. So CEP is average deviation at distance. Some of these weapons we have have a CEP of less than one meter or less than half a meter. And there are some that are more accurate than that. So when you can put a thousand pounds of TNT or equivalent within half a meter of something, I don't care what it's made out of. It goes away. So, yes, it. It's not about artillery, as you say. It's not about technicality, or as you say, in terms of tactics. But it's more the understanding of the modern battle space encompasses geoint, massint, sigint, humant, and drinking all of that data from the enemy, drinking it from your own sources, and then collaboratively working with all of your partnerships at the same time to effectively shape operations where they can do the most damage or as Clausewitz called it the Schwerpunkt. Exactly. It's a it's the concept of making the fishes kiss. Like you are going to like if you're a commander, even if you're a commander, you're not going to have perfect information, but you're going to drink in just this goddamn inundation of information even drinking from the fire hose oh yes you just get submerged in the helmet fire and the quantity of information your subordinate leaders are pulling out of the battlefield right the the 
combined arms is actually when you manage to take all of that data, process it into actionable intelligence, and then make a decision on how you're going to use your assets and coordinate them to achieve effects. Measure twice, cut once. Yes. And so it's it's a lot less about having certain types of equipment or certain types of people or, or this or that or physical gear you know, available to you. And it's a lot more about being able to synergize effects across domains so that you can... I, what does MDO Doctrine say? I think if I pull this out of memory, it's like problem set... No more, be more, do more. Problem solve. Yeah, engage, reset, recompete. And that's because it's tailored towards limited political objectives, which is interesting, actually. Like reestablishing an international boundary in a third-party country where there's a war against an aggressor power. Um, hint, hint, Ukraine. Um, and without having to escalate to full-scale war. Yeah, it's... That's what it's designed to do. But it's also designed to work with a division-level, like, theater asset. You can scale it up. It just depends on what level is making that decision. Well, and it's one of those things that I feel is fun is people forget that Arma was designed as kind of a simple training aid and kind of a simple representation of certain situations and scenarios. And it really took off when people started modding the shit out of it. But my favorite time in Arma that I found was the most realistic was this guy had a series of mods that fucked comms and you had to use in-game comms. It (laughs) fucked comms. There were whiteouts and there was E-War. So you would get half of a transmission or you would keep trying to raise division saying, I need assets, I need this, I need that. And they don't hear well, if they don't hear, they don't send. So it'd be like, shit, we need to retransmit. And you had to constantly run around and it turned into a game of relocate the radio because it also had line of sight communications. So what was hilarious is we're sitting there running around in Arma wanting to blow something up. And we were like, uh, uh, let's get up on that hill and go up on the hill, set up the mass, sit there and try to scream at a satellite. And then it's gone. Well, how much of the order did they get off? Are we getting artillery? There was lag in the communication as well. And this was players DMing essentially as command, which was great because what they did was they gave us strings to tie on for lifelines and then cut them at random. And we had no idea which were working. And nobody wants to play like that. People want, you know, cast that is laser accurate. Oh, but that's real life. That's that's real life. Like as you as you get into Especially working across sister units, it gets even more complicated. Yeah, quick, quick NTC war story. I was actually operationally, my platoon was opconned to a sister troop, which is it, the DivCav troops are like the size of a battalion. They're huge. They have six platoons. Um, it's enormous. And we essentially conducted a whole bunch of reconnaissance for them, right? Their assets got schwacked. And so they were like, hey, we need somebody with your capabilities who can get down here and sneak around the Denovians, the Russian analogs. And we got like, we got damn near into their tactical assembly area before I was like, we've pushed too far forward. We need to like go back and report all of this up because we lost communications with them. Their retrans was trash, and so I spent about 12 hours just out there booling on my own, no communications with any higher headquarters, but I was executing the whole time. You know, I was pushing the forward line of troops forward. I was getting 
uh, grids for fire missions. I was locating their EW assets. I was locating their anti-air assets. And they never had any idea I was there. I didn't dismount. All I did was drive my little two-bit, you know, four-seater truck around. And I was like, the Denovians are all asleep right now because they don't think we can be here right now. They don't think we can be this far forward. And so I was like, I'm just going to drive around, write down all these grids in my little, you know, green notebook. And then I'm going to bound back to somewhere I have radio communications. And I'm going to tell them, hey, this is where all of their stuff is at. Like, just push an asset forward to observe and then airstrike it, call in, you know, 155s, drop mortars on it, do whatever. But this is the list of assets you're going to cripple if you do this. And and people don't realize, like, that's real life. Like, comms go out. I, I This is a – take this as an apolitical statement, but it's like the United States Army is giving essentially funding away from the modernization budget to support – government objectives in other places let's say part of what's getting hit is our modernization program for our radios the asip is a vietnam it's a 1970s era piece of equipment it needs to go i was i was now, no, now we ahead. thought it was totally inadequate until ukraine kicked off and we realized how bad the people who are supposed to be our peers are but that doesn't change that we are attempting to hold ourselves to a higher standard and need that upgrade to achieve that objective. Well, especially for a networked battle space in which if someone finds a hole in that, you are capital F fucked. Now, one of my favorite uh, favorite little analogs, if you think our radios are bad, I mean, have you ever seen a Russian R105M? Uh, that was their Afghanistan radio. And those are still in service in some places, as are their successors. These things have a range of no, and I don't believe it wasn't until the 70s, the late 70s, they had any form of squelch, which means you have to leave that box on and wide open with everything. You're listening to the sound of the universe screaming. You're listening to the big bang as you walk around. It's just going, <laughs> and you have no oh, yeah. ability to tune for breakthrough of frequency. It was, I mean, a lot of radios in many militaries are very very shit and oh yeah is, and i'm yeah. not to clarify for the audience i'm not saying the asip is bad i'm saying we can do better <laughs> absolutely like <laughs> like the options are out there we just have to get acquisitions and requisitions and all of the various different systems to agree on actually like we need these oh i agree and i i think that that is definitely where people kind of overlook. They look for, oh, we need the new sexy weapon system that is the amalgam of all the things built into this perfect product. And I go, right, but let's say the war goes on for longer than a week. And a lot of these heavier pieces of equipment that are incredibly complex, that are incredibly difficult to fix or replace, get knocked out. And I have to go then hump this fight on the ground and run around on foot. Well, what if, what if when we get down to that stuff, we're still using really old equipment? And the enemy knows that as soon as we bust out of our good shit, we're all of a sudden going to be in a place where we're a lot more vulnerable. And that's where you need to make sure that your capabilities and defense are the same, whether you are very weak or very strong with equipment on the field, so that the individual platoon is no weaker than they are with company level or division level or battalion level assets. You, you have people on the ground who have the same protection, the same capabilities, the same abilities to do everything. And I think that it's something that has kind of gotten lost as people overlook the importance of stuff like radio. People also overlook the changing world of medical training. 
Oh, yeah. Because the shit we knew going into, and I'm saying as, as the, you know, as the U.S. military says, you learn something very bloody every battle. Oh, yeah. And, and so Afghanistan and Iraq taught a lot of people in military affairs that we don't know shit until we get there and try it. And so you see kit changes, equipment changes and everything else. But training, especially first aid training, really came a long way during the uh, during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, including stabilizing people who should not have lived because rapid rethinking and evolution of the medical corps. And that's something that, you know, people sometimes think is not that important to fund. And it's like, yeah, but the U.S. Army has hospitals where they can take someone with their legs blown off. And prevent them from dying in the field. Oh, not only that is incredible. Not only that, but technology has come such a long way that you'll see. And this is normally only very motivated individuals. You'll see dudes who are Blade Runners, who who come back into the service and continue to fight. Like uh, this was uh, during the GWAT, which of course everybody tells me the GWAT's over. That must be nice. Um, but like you'd see dudes at Fort Bragg who were multiple amputees who just got a prosthetic and came back and they could still serve. And they, exactly. they actively did. You know, yep. like what's and more terrifying than a green beret showing back up in Afghanistan with a blade for a leg still ready to absolutely just endo your fucking life. And I would say one of the coolest that, things related to medical that I ever saw was a project at the Academy. And I know I'm going to get uh, crapped on for, for talking about the Academy, but uh, the army will field R and D problems to the academy, and essentially they're just free like crowdsourcing ideas from all these very sad college students who have crazy <laughs> who have crazy ideas and just enough funding to maybe pull them off. That's how we got the man portable minigun. That was a West Point project. The the scraping down of the systems and parts to a weight where you could make it fit into a backpack and be carryable was a West Point project. But so one of the coolest some... things I ever saw was a it's this chest rig, right? With this spine stabilization. And essentially what it does is it heats or cools all of these uh, sort of key spots on your body so that you can take someone with a concussion or a spinal injury, potentially even a catastrophic one, and you can actually stabilize them and then airlift them out. And you can even use it with special uh, recovery equipment, which is like, you know, deep jungle, deep jungle penetrator, a stretcher, a litter or anything like that. It's designed to be operable within those systems. So it's, yeah, the, the, distance we've come in the understanding of like what the biggest killer on the battlefield is and how you avoid that is incredible just since i was like you know a kid growing up at fort bragg in the early 2000s and i i think that those revolutions are often just massively overlooked because people only want to talk about the latest laser guided smart blah 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 and don't realize there's life-saving systems out there that now have matriculated to the civilian world that may save your life someday. And they started off as just dreams in a corner. Um, and now I'm going to tell you this much. When it, when they put out the man-portable minigun, I'm sure in the box <laughs> where it said reason. <laughs> because the guy wrote, can. <laughs> no, I know what they probably wrote. I pro I'm a sexual tyrannosaurus. <laughs> So <laughs> it serves no practical purpose. I don't know why they cool. fielded that it's as like cool. as like a as like a Vulcan Raven as like a problem set that needed solving. 
but by God, you know, they handed it over. I what's another cool one? Uh, oh, okay, another cool one. I, I'm sure everyone will remember there's because there's a big. It was like national news. I say a few years ago, but it's probably been over a decade at this point. Um, where down here in Texas, they were shooting gunnery on a range. You know, Abrams shot a training sabo, and it skipped and uh, went through this gentleman's house about ten miles away. Um, and so that's obviously less than ideal. <laughs> and so what they did is they went to the academy and they said, "Hey, these training sabo rounds—they really—they just—they ricochet too much. If you fire them on a flat enough trajectory, they—they they bounce and they go all over the place. We need you to make this not happen." And so it was a bunch of college kids, like all sad in the mechanical engineering department, you know, click clacking away on their keyboard. Who figured out? Oh, well, we just cut a groove into the sabo about halfway up so that when it hits the ground, it actually deforms and the aerodynamics of the round are all messed up. So it won't, you know, it won't go outside of the SDZ. It's, you know, something so simple, but so crucial because it's a bad day when you put a Sabo through a civilian's house. <laughs> yeah. Talk about buying the farm. Now I'm going to ask something because I, I think that, you know, at West Point, they treat you guys pretty good. Best and worst MRE. Oh, okay. This has changed a lot recently. Indeed. In That's the last, why I asked. In the last 10 years, uh, for everybody who's not tracking, menu A and menu B have changed a lot, which is the two boxes of MREs you get and what they're contained in. Oh, the pizza slice is awful. We'll start with that. It's a piece of cardboard. The beef ones, I think I, I got nothing but menu A the entire time. I was just on rotation for 35 days straight. So I was, I'm really, really not about the beef MREs at this point. Southwest style uh, chili with beans is going to be my pick. That's not a bad one. Because that one, that one is always, it is a workhorse. It is always good enough. It's the chili it, mac it of the early 21st century. <laughs> Yes, it's it's always good enough, and the snacks are good enough that you don't complain about them, and that says a lot. I think so. I think so. So here's here's my question, and I think this could be an interesting one to kind of wrap it up with. Let's say you're a tanker in the world of BattleTech. What would your tactics be? Okay, so that question depends on whether or not I have an equivalent level of technology to me right here, right now, or I'm fighting Battletech, which is I can't get an AC-20 to go past 200 meters. Let's say you get to use your pick of modern equipment. Oh, okay. I think I'm going to go French, actually. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with the old uh, six-rad gun carrier because uh, mechs are awesome. They would probably not like Sabo very much, if I had to guess. And they would really not like HE. Yeah, and they also have like these big glass cockpits, and you're like, wow, glass, that's neat. HMX explosives. Yeah. And then wheels, because everything I have has a better gun than I do, hypothetically or at least one that's going to kill me no matter how armored I am. So I'm just going to go with wheels for superior mobility, and I'm going to hide real good. And then any time a mech lance walks by, my platoon is just going to be like sniggering in the bushes, and then boom, you're dead. Like you just took a hit to the back armor. It, you know, if it didn't outright destroy your mech, it has now broken, you know, 50% of your systems, and you have to still figure out where I'm at. 
or you have I, to chase me, which is even worse because I know I'm faster than you. I, I think what I would use if I had to modern equipment, I just use the whole engineering shebang. I'd be like, cool, composite minefield. And yep, just sit yep. there with your bulldozers. <laughs> just sit there with your bulldozers and be like, I'm just a simple road repair crew. <laughs> Nothing terrible going on. Just minding my own business. <laughs> so that, that that leads to the question, how wide do you have to make an anti-tank? Or wide and deep do you have to make an anti-tank ditch that a mech could step into it and not be able to get out, even with jump jets? <laughs> I would say, I would say, ideally, the thing to stop a mech would probably just be mud. Like oh, yeah. a muddy field, you know, would just... I, I've not yet seen a mech with a feet design that looks like it could <laughs> handle something like the Rasputitsa mud or something like that, where you just flood a field and it's like, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, I just walk in here because if it'll pull boots that are laced up to my knees off my foot, it is going to fuck up a machine that goes in there. It's just concrete. Oh, yeah. Another good one would just be like triple strand concertina wire. And and you don't even you don't even set it up as like a blocking obstacle. You just wait for them to step on it because all of those little pinchy parts in the foot are just going to suck it up into the mechanisms. And before long, it's like, OK, I have this really cool mech, but I can't go anywhere. Oh, if you got enough good concertina wire and then you like laid Bangalore torpedoes in between and you just have those with contact fuses, you know, as soon as it grabs oh. and steps up, it's like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's like explosions. Yeah. It'd be like having black cats taped to your leg. It would be really unpleasant. Uh, if, oh. if the black cats were made out of dynamite. <laughs> but that's you know, that's what people fail to recognize is that in a place like Van Zant or the Torian Concordat, that might be a perfectly legitimate way to fight somebody. It's like the old concept of the fake city where it's all just cardboard cutouts and they land in the wrong yeah. place. <laughs> oh yeah, like well that's that was my idea for like asymmetrical warfare in the periphery is that you you uh go find well, okay. How do they find a starport? There's probably a beacon, right? This is the starport beacon. Move the beacon to plywood town. <laughs> and then just basically rock ridge them from blazing saddles. Like you run into yeah. the fake city and they're like, wait a second, this is a bunch of dummies. And the dummies are made out of Simtex. And you're like, ah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this, they yeah, would get really mad. <laughs> that's the, well, they wouldn't be around to be mad about it. This is the thing people don't realize is that like military affairs are so specific to what you are doing in the place you're doing in them at the time you're doing them in and and no one problem set is like another because everything's different every time you do it absolutely every time you take your tools out of the toolbox it's going to be a different problem even if it looks the same because on the opposite end of this problem are human beings with free will who will make decisions based around yours and they will change based on what you do and that's where that human element becomes very unpredictable. So when you come up with a universal game plan that says, if X, then Y, I go back to my original statement. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. When things get bloody and chaotic, you end up with things that spiral out of control. And all you can do is call for more support or run away. And both of those can be catastrophic, especially if the enemy wants you to call in more support. Especially if the enemy is trying to get you to do a Diem Ben Fu. Yep, the enemy always gets a vote. Yep. And humans humans are endlessly creative. 
Indeed. So uh, we're winding up the podcast. I was going to say thank you for coming on. But is there anything you want to spread out there? The time is yours. You may say any endorsements or nice things you want. Hi, mom. More than acceptable. Oh, my parents are never going to listen to this. They don't even know what a podcast is. I don't Uh, like them (laughs) records in the mail. They tend to break. Them there. Them there internet records that don't have a don't have a disc with it. You know you didn't ask this question, but I'm gonna answer it anyways. Best two war movies of all time. Two thousand one, Master and Commander, nineteen ninety seven, Rough Riders with Tom Perringer as Teddy Roosevelt. If you haven't seen them, go watch them. They're excellent for very different reasons. And uh go army, beat Navy. Excellent. And I will double that down. Master and Commander is probably the best war movie ever made. It's so that is it's perspective of people, their relationships, and how how you lead and the requirements for leadership are what really does it for me. Now, you talk about Kelly's Heroes as Slice of Life. Yes. Rough Riders does that for me because you get I, into some very, very personal moments between people and like what people don't – I say what people don't realize. It's silly sounding, but what the general public doesn't realize is – that's what interacting with actual human beings in those kinds of environments is like. What? People under stress act differently? Are you crazy? Yeah. That's that's insane. That's wild. That's wild. Whoever would have thought that? <laughs> War is hard. We find stuff. Stuff that makes us go. We're strong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that reminds me of one last, parting, one last parting shot for all of you aspiring military theorists who know everything about the everything out there from... And this is this is one that was given to me specifically by my platoon sergeant, who uh, deployed as a fuzzy in the in the surge to uh, to use here. Uh, killing people is easy, logistics is hard. Napoleon had some of the same sentiment, and um, it's one of those things that people don't seem to realize is that conflict itself is very easy until you figure out who's going to feed all these people, and how do I get bullets and band aids and beans to them. And then it's like, oh, shit. And so, yeah, love your quartermaster. Hail Cargonia.